0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, by vote. Tomorrow you? night at seven,
1: the Beatles read their own poetry on a documentary Meet the Beatles. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> really? I the don't Beatles. understand. Tomorrow this. Night from seven to eight, we ain't written no poetry.
2: Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Walls, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. Get in contact with the show, email us at at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. As always, I'm your host Sam Wiles, and remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Right, folks, this is an episode I've wanted to do for a while now, as we really were on a roll at the end of last year in terms of literary reviews for the podcast. And now it's time we've covered the very first book that I owned by Paul himself. And it was also the first book that he ever released. Yes, we have done Hey Grand Dude, parts one and two, as well as his lyrics book. But we're going to go right back to the start with Blackbird Singing. Yes, technically, his 1980 gelbird Diary was the first ever lengthy tome he ever put pen to paper with. And yes, he had his editor, Adrian Mitchell, do pretty much the entire thing in, in terms of putting it together. But yes, this is the first book ever, quote-unquote, written by Paul McCartney. Not only that, but this is not just a mere autobiography or silly children's book. This is something that is totally not pretentious, not overly artsy, not a little on the more boring side of potential McCartney topics, because, yes, you guessed it, folks. We're going to be talking about the poetry of Paul McCartney today, here today. We all like poetry here, right, don't we? Well, I hope so, because we're going to do it, and we're going to learn a whole lot about this expressionistic, deep, soulful, artistic side of McCartney. It's going to be a magical podcast, and you're all going to enjoy it, okay? I'm not going to lie, folks. Despite how seemingly short this text is, I've been looking forward to reviewing it for quite some time now, and I've been eager to dig into some of these other facets of Paul McCartney's artistic oeuvre. We've not even begun to cover his dance music, his orchestral stuff, or even his paintings. And I thought, why not begin our first steps outside of the norm by tackling the topic with the least entries? Yes, because Blackbird singing is to date the only book of poetry that Paul has ever put out, and so if this episode really isn't your bag, I'm going to say thank you for the download at the top right here and put you at ease because there probably isn't going to be another one. However, all jokes aside, this is a chance for us to put aside our preconceptions about poetry and get to know the real Paul a little better here as This is a man who has always put on a front and worn a mask to some degree. And so for him to bear himself so openly with a book of poetry, well, how could that not be of interest to you? Come on. But before we dig into any of that, of course, we must first deal with the matter of the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms for news today? Nothing. Nothing has happened since I released the last episodes. We will press right on to the emails. To get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show. You know, your McCartney-isms, your McCartney stories, factoids. Maybe you need to query something that's gone on with the show. Maybe I've made a mistake and you want to point it out. Maybe there's some content in the future you'd like to talk about, some content in the past that I've covered that you want to go into a little more detail with. Whatever it may be drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. We do have a quick one here today from one of our Patreon patrons, Mr Andy Cochran, no relation to Eddie, I've asked, and he says, Hi Sam, I thought I'd just drop you an email and thank you for all the work you put into the podcast. I've really enjoyed going through the pods from the start, and I'm gradually getting through them all. I think your enthusiasm for the subject is what is really inspiring. I'm a couple of decades older than you, and I've been a Beatles slash Paul fan since the early 90s. Although... Both were well ingrained in my brain long before then. Try being a child of the 70s and avoiding either. It was impossible. However, you're a young man in comparison, and to hear how enthusiastic you are about the subject is fantastic. You add a large drop of fun to the subject too, as well as a lot of knowledge. I'd argue with you there. I'm sure I echo the thoughts of many of the podcast followers when I say thanks and keep up the good work. Kind regards, Andy. Oh, you kids, you make me blush, you know getting me all emotional and worked up on the podcast mid-recording. If you're trying to get me to cry, Andy, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but not even a single masculine tear is rolling down my face right now. But, you know, when people send stuff like this in... I have something in my eye, Okay, Just one moment. Okay, thank you so much for that, Andy. (laughs) It's always touching when someone writes in to say anything nice about this little old show but you know it is these exact kind of emails that get you through those long writing sessions especially with a topic as heady and as long-winded and as lengthy as the one we are covering today so thank you so much dude and if you want to be like andy if you want to just say something nice and have your email read out on the show drop me an email at gmail.com for daily updates follow us on our twitter page which is at McCartney Pod. For bonus Paul or Nothing content in the written form, check out the blog, which is PaulMcCartneyPod.wordpress.com. For the socials, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in either Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the place where you can check out brand new episodes of our side series, Macca in Your Attic, where me and a guest go through their memorabilia collections to find some interesting and insightful and rare and quirky, maybe even sentimental items, as well as having a general Beatles chittle chattle. The latest guest is Paul Nicholson, who is one of the co-hosts of the Trimming the Fat podcast, who very kindly had me on their show a while back. Go and check that out if you haven't already. And go check out Mac It In Your Attic if you haven't already. It's the best place to get... An extra hour or two of Paul or content every week. That's out every Friday on the dot. On the dot. A lot more regularly than, say, this podcast. But I do that whole show off the cuff in this podcast. Saps my very soul to get done on time. But hey, enough of that. If you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you are on whether you are leaving a thumbs up, likes, stars, maybe even writing a little nice comment about the show. Every time someone out there does it, it really helps boost the show in terms of our visibility through the algorithms and stuff like that. If you haven't done it already, if you think everyone else is doing it, don't be that person. If you like the show, if you enjoy the work I put into it, then please just take a few seconds out of your busy schedule and leave us a hopefully positive little review. Thank you very much. Though, if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help us expand, if you want to see the show grow, if you want to help me get product to review, guests to interview, new equipment, or maybe you just want to show some appreciation for the work I do here whilst doing this podcast and working a full-time job and, my God, reading so many bloody books, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as moi, though it is not just a fundraiser. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to all episodes of it in your attic. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed, so anything that I record on Zoom, sometimes weeks, months before the actual episode is released. That will go straight up on the Patreon page. You get access to lost episodes and bonus episodes that will never be put on the feed, as well as all of the scripts I use for these episodes. Definitely worth having a little look-see if that be your thing. Of course, you know, my Patreon family is a group of incredible people who I really couldn't do the show without, you know. They really do keep me going in that sense. I just want to give a quick shout-out to them before we begin. People including Jack. Mr D Dubbs, Andy Cochran, who we heard from earlier, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twohy, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs P, Broderick Harper, Moti Riber, Richard Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DeLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Right, folks, this is going to be a big one today, probably far bigger than any of you would probably expect or even want from an episode about Paul McCartney's poetry, but hey, let's just crack on with it. Right, folks, as with every book review here on the show, as I want to do, we're going to do a little extensive, some would say overly long, preamble and set the scene so that we can dive right into the text with the right mindset. Speaking of the text itself, I know some of you still may be wondering just what the hell is Blackbird singing? Well, I'm going to let the entry from Paul's own personal website do the explaining for me as it reads to many readers some of this book will be instantly recognizable as the songs that have formed the backdrop to every generation since the 60s. Their lyrics have been learned almost subliminally by heart. Eleanor Rigby, Band on the Run, She's Leaving Home, Penny Lane but among the familiar are poems that have never been seen before. Sharing the preoccupations of the songs and including moving elegies to Paul's wife Linda, they give us unique access to the inner life of one of the most influential figures in pop culture history of the last 50 years. They demonstrate against an acknowledgement of the essential solitariness of existence, an irrepressible belief of the power of words and music to make things better. If you didn't understand that, folks, it's a book of poetry by Paul with some lyrics thrown in there. Now, something that I've never really gone into much on the show is the fact that, back in the day, I actually used to write quite a lot of poems. I wouldn't call myself a poet, never, but when I was a younger man, in my early 20s, me and my friend Tom Quee, who I've had on the podcast several times now, were part of the Birmingham spoken word poetry scene, where we would go and listen to the best and worst of Birmingham's minds express themselves on the stage in a variety of pub, back rooms, function rooms and coffee shops. Hell, we even get up and do a poem of our own from time to time, including one of my terrible poems, American Bully, and one of my friend Tom's best poems, I Want to Be Your Ex, which I I still think about sometimes. I even filmed... I even filmed several videos for a variety of poets, and we even shot the first two episodes of a tragically bad spoken word poetry web series that you can still find on YouTube. But it wasn't just publicly that I would vent this particular artistic valve. I was in a long-term relationship at the time, the one that I refer to a lot in the earlier episodes of this podcast, and for that woman I actually wrote and handcrafted three or four books of poetry, and whilst I'm sure the majority of it would make me cringe now if I were ever to read them again, in my mind's eye there were still some of the best things I'd ever written. So yeah, whilst I would not go so far as to say that I've ever had the attention span to learn about poetry or read anyone else's poetry in earnest, I was still certainly interested in the art form, and still am. So you can only imagine how interested I was at the prospect of Paul releasing such a book. I mean, you all know me. I'm a staunch defender of McCartney's lyricism and songwriting, and so there is no doubt in my mind that this book would, at the very least, be something really interesting, and allow me to reflect on Paul as two kinds of writers, all in one book. As we all know, Paul has passions for a lot of artistic endeavours, and poetry is just another one of them. He has... Such enthusiasm for everything he does. And so he's never going to just focus on one thing and one thing alone. Which is possibly something that some of his fans would rather him not do. I know there are probably people out there listening right now who are like, Oh, poetry, why can't I just focus on doing the next album? But, you know, Paul is aware of this notion. He reiterates the thought, actually, in an article from the Guardian newspaper in 2001. He says... I'm intelligent enough to know that it's more cool to focus on one thing and to do that really well. But I'm an enthusiast. It's more positive to do it than not to do it. I never much liked authority. I didn't like school teachers or critics telling me what I could or couldn't do. Or myself telling me in the interview with charlie rose paul mentions that he was never just going to write songs and make music but he was also aware of this kind of pompous notion of being known as a renaissance man who does everything and anything and he did want to pace himself this means that he is aware that this move does seem a little bit odd or reaching or overly artsy you know for him to suddenly start writing poetry it is it is a bit left of field And in the same Charlie Rose interview, he even mentions that he had the reservations of poetry being pretentious. So it's not like he's this aloof, lofty, rich guy talking down to the plebs from his mansion. He's a born working class guy who knows how all of this stuff sounds. And he does know how a certain group of his fan base and other people in the wider poetry realm will react to such a move. But, as Adrian Mitchell, his editor, points out, he has always been a poet, even before he started writing poetry in earnest. Mitchell says, Paul is not in the line of academic or modernist poets. He is a poet in the tradition of popular poetry. Homer was and is a popular poet, understood and loved by millions of people who never saw a university. William Blake who used to sing his songs of innocence and experience to a small circle of friends has become one of the most popular of all poets. That comes from the introduction to the book. Now, in terms of Paul choosing to release this work, we really should not treat it as something that he just dusted off in one day, uh, you know, it, in a bit of cynical self aggrandisement or worse, a cash grab to, you know, exploit a different market. This is something that he took the time to weigh up put Tom into and release as a part of his career and not some dirty little side project. I mean, he's released music without his name on it and we have a book of poetry here with his name bigger than the title, for fuck's sake. he You know, this is real. He's also someone who's been consistently concerned with image and so we should respect that decision and consciously choose not to treat it as any less canonical or significant within his wider body of work. Arguably, though, a poet is anyone who writes poetry, not even necessarily someone who professes themselves to be a poet. And so we really should make an attempt to meet Paul halfway here and study this poetry like we would any other poet. I'm not sure how many of you out there actually study the poetry of poets, but you know what I'm getting at. Oh, and finally... Not to make this into a Paul versus John thing or anything, but the fact that John had already released A Spaniard in the works and in his own right certainly was part of the reason why people would be potentially less welcoming of Blackbird singing. And don't tell me I'm reading too much into this because I'm not. Lennon was always perceived to be the poet of the two and not Paul specifically. Say if Lennon had never released two books of poetry in the early 60s, and then there was a posthumous book of Lennon's poetry, released in the early 2000s, people would still be going around calling Lennon a poet. And that would still not get nearly as much resistance to the idea of Paul being a poet. I mean, if Lennon was called a poet, people would cite, I am the walrus, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, In My Life, Norwegian Wood, with no trouble at all, And that would be the end of it, John would be a poet. And, you know, whilst I'm not gonna sit here and incorrectly state that Lennon wasn't a poet, you know, he he most certainly was, but you know, Lennon was a lot more obvious about his poeticism. Like, you know, if he's doing a basic rock and roll song, and you know if he's doing something deep and emotional or some sort of psychedelic rabbit hole, and you really doesn't have much in between. Whereas Paul has been a lot more matter-of-fact and subtle in his poetry, and he doesn't need to hide behind grand gestures of, look at me, look how poetic and artsy I am. You know, John was the art college kid, and it really shows. And, you know, it's easy to do psychedelics of You've just got to rip off Lewis Carroll, and you're already halfway done. But, you know, Paul has always done poetic lyrics. He's not known as a lyricist. He's not known as a great lyricist. But he's always had lyrics that have managed to inspire and provoke and make you feel something even if that feeling most of the time is just a feeling of positivity but you know as this podcast hopefully has already proven the deeper you go into paul's solo career the more you realize that he is not just the silly love songs guy and there is substance to his work okay everyone i think i've rambled on long enough about this little preamble I think we know the kind of headspace I'm in when approaching this book. Hopefully you've got a little more context as to what we should be doing when going into this. And so now we'll go into the history. So it's time for us to go over the what, the who, the when, the where and the why as we go back in time and catalogue the entire history behind the process of this book from its first writings to publication to promotion. So where exactly did this book start anyway? Well... Despite being a Paul McCartney book, it was actually born from the interactions and relationships he had with many important people across his life. Paul first started his poetic journey at the same place most of us do, back at school, which at the time was the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys. In several interviews over the years, Paul has cited the one teacher that was a true inspirational figure for him was his English literature teacher, Alan Durband. He taught Paul about Chaucer, even teaching it in Old English, and showed a fledgling macker that poems could be dirty and funny, as well as emotional. I'm sure it was Durban who would have encouraged a young macker to enter a poem for a submission to the school magazine, and would have equally been heartbroken when it wasn't published. As Adrian Mitchell, Paul's editor, points out in his introduction, it was also around this time when Paul was first getting into rock and roll, with some artists being what Paul would go on to call some of the greatest American poets of all time. Figures like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Joey Lieber, etc. were all people whose lyrics sung about the dirtiness of life and who used the same kind of language. Also, whilst not cited that much in any of the interviews, I kind of discern this from the lyrics book, but it was also around this time that Paul would have undoubtedly been learning about his father's penchant for wordsmithery and the importance of words for effect be it comic tragic or descriptive of course there was one main schoolyard figure that inspired Paul to write poetry and no I'm not on about John Lennon or George Harrison no the man behind his return to poetry was spurred on by the death of a school friend Ivan Vaughan Paul describes Vaughan as one of his best friends at school ever since they found out that they were born on the same exact day, you know, as kids do. Unlike Lennon, he was actually at Paul's school, and unlike Harrison, he was the same age. So, pre-Beatles, Vaughan would have been one of the greatest influences on a young McCartney. Vaughan did have other friends, though, as shown by the fact that he played teapot bass in a little band called The Quarrymen, and would end up being the chap who introduced Paul to John at the Walton Fete. So, in a sense, he helped Paul further his writing potential possibly than anyone else in the world, without even realising he was the one who had done it. He then went on to be a classic student at Oxford, and had the beginnings of a long, successful life, which was tragically cut short. Vaughan contracted Parkinson's disease in his early 30s, and Paul regularly talks about how he was so well-read uh, and educated that it meant that he was fully aware of what was happening to him and how much more tragic and painful that made his condition. Once Ivan died, Paul was obviously very affected and he wanted to express himself fully, but unlike with John, it didn't seem fitting to write a song, and he instead wrote a poem, which we will later hear, called Ivan. Ivan. When speaking of it at a public reading of his work, Paul said, Ivan was my best friend from my school days, and when he died, that started me off writing poetry. Instead of writing a song, I felt like this was the time to write a poem. It just felt more appropriate. And in the foreword of his book, he continues that train of thought. It seemed to me that a poem, rather than a song, could perhaps best express what I was feeling. Now, this led Paul to essentially reopen a door that was long since shut and begun a whole host of poems to suddenly start pouring out of his mind. Though, as always, Paul had a certain inspirational figure in his life at this time to make sure that he kept at it and improving upon his work and not giving up, as he details in an interview with the Guardian newspaper in March of 2001. He said, Linda encouraged me to write poems. After Ivan, I did a few more some emotional and some jests, imaginistic fragments. They talked about the idea of a book with the poet Adrian Mitchell, whose own reading performances they had backed. A book for Paul. Yeah, I like the idea of that, a slim volume, you know. Wouldn't it be nice, a slim volume of poetry, something to talk about at parties? When asked by Charlie Rose why he hadn't done a book like this sooner, Paul's flippant comedic answer was that no-one had ever asked him. But the real reason was that he simply hadn't written enough, though by a certain point he would have been able to accrue a sizeable enough collection, including stuff that probably didn't make it into this book. And as he alluded to there, basically Linda was the main force behind the book and went behind Paul's back somewhat to hatch the plan to spring the idea of the book upon him with the editor Adrian Mitchell, though as Mitchell hints at in his introduction, This secrecy was short-lived, as Paul always seems to know what's going on around him. On a side note, Paul also mentions that he simply knows that there are people out there who will want to read what he's been writing. And as, you know, kind of silly as that sounds, I think that's quite astute, really. If I found out that Paul had, you know, a book or half a book or a few pages of poetry that he'd never released to the public, that would certainly be something that I'd like him to, to to put out there. And, you know, his fan base is big enough that several thousands of people would want to see that as well. But who is this Adrian Mitchell character I've been talking about? Well, in the early 60s, he was a journalist for the Daily Mail and would interview the Beatles as regularly as he was allowed to. From that point, he and Paul would become close friends, rather like Paul's relationship with the lyrics editor, Paul Muldoon. And... Just like that, what drew Paul to Mitchell was the fact that he was a published poet and novelist. In fact, he was so close with Paul, and this is something that I never knew about at all, um, was the fact that Paul let Mitchell read some of his poems in front of his own live audience at four of his shows during the South End leg of his 1991 tour. This was confirmed on several bootlegs, which feature poems such as Maybe Maytime, Song in Space, I like that stuff, and Hot Pursuit. In fact, here's a snippet from Club Sandwich which details the whole affair. It reads, He had rehearsed with Paul and the band two days earlier. The musicians kept up a low-volume accompaniment while Mitchell addressed the audience with four of his poems. Junk was recognisable as the backing behind the love verse of Maybe Maytime, and a suitably funky arrangement was provided to augment a poem about James Brown. The sequence was so very much a departure from the norm and so irresistibly fascinating to watch that most audience mouths were left distinctly agape. It must have made the McCartney memory bank dart back to the other time he had backed a bard, an unforgettable Liverpool evening in 1960 that had the youthful Silver Beetles, clearly lads of a sheltered upbringing, accompanying visiting beat poet Royston Ellis and found themselves somewhat puzzled by Ellis's indiscreetly veiled references to then-illegal all-male sexual activities. Now, in regard to Paul's own poetic leanings, Mitchell had already released a book of verse where Blackbird was listed as a poem. And, annoyingly, I cannot find out what this book was called, so if you do know, please e- email in at gmail.com But yeah, this was the first time that Adrian had conveyed the idea to Paul that some of his songs were poems. And, Once, you know, he saw the result, he slowly started to come around to the idea. Also, on another side note, uh, in this book, the words to Blackbird were credited to Lennon-McCartney, and that's the exact point where Paul started his issue over the authorship of some of his songs that John didn't have anything to do with, you know, leading to the anthology, can this be McCartney-Lennon, blah, 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 you all know the story. Anyway, going back to the book itself... Mitchell really was instrumental in the actual putting together of the book and the collation of the content within. In interviews, Paul admitted that he had no idea how to put a book of poetry together, and that he allowed Mitchell to essentially lead him through the entire process. First of all, Paul writes all of his poems entirely with a pencil and paper, so I'm sure the first job Mitchell had to do was type it all up. But it doesn't just end with the busy work, and Whilst I'm sure everything would have to be run past Paul at some point in the production, Amaka did certainly place a large amount of trust in Mitchell, as well as a surprising amount of autonomy. When speaking of his ability to edit the poems themselves, Mitchell wrote the following in his introduction. It reads, Sometimes I've made small suggestions for cuts or changes, and sometimes Paul accepted them. Possibly a bit of Paul's old, Did you write yesterday? mentality, cropped up once again here, but even if Mitchell was able to exude this authority just once, it's still a hell of a feat. Additionally, though, there were two other major contributions that Adrian added to the affair. The first of which was that he chose the title, Blackbird Singing. Yeah, it's still pretty damn good, isn't it? But perhaps most importantly of all, it was Mitchell himself who chose all of the songs and their lyrics for inclusion, and which you know to not include, so this means that Mitchell is the one who included something like "Why don't we do it in the road, for example, A stroke of genius, if you ask me, I don't know whether he was tasked with choosing which poems or not to include or in what order they would be grouped in or how they'd be shown, or the font or you know the way. It's composed on the page. But still, it's clear that Paul would not have been able to do it without him and that it really is a collaborative effort. One example of an edit that stood out to me right away, though, was for the lyrics to Penny Lane. The opening line is changed from Penny Lane, there is a fun with an hour... Blah, blah, blah. It's p- in Penny Lane, which to me felt like a suggestion from Mitchell to distance itself from the instrumental melody though the result is another strange rewording of a Beatles classic, a la Here, There and Everywhere from Give My Regards to Broad Street. Going back to Linda's involvement with the album, though, and sadly, it would not be an entirely positive one. For those of you who have already read Blackbird Singing or gone ahead and double-checked the dates, then yes, you will know that it came out after and is largely about the death of Linda McCartney. Linda tragically died of breast cancer in April 1998, and unlike John and Ivan, whom only get one nod each in this book, Linda gets a whole fucking chapter, totalling around 15 poems. Clearly, the loss of his wife, the mother of his children, the light of his existence, was incomparably devastated to him. And that is reflected oh so clearly and regularly, throughout the content in blackbird singing the idea of paul working through his pain and you know using it as a part of his overall poetic process was detailed somewhat in the same interview with the guardian newspaper in march of 2001 it reads when linda died he cried for a year and he wrote poems for her about her to her she's still there he says she always will be But they say that time is a healer, and it is. It heals by erasure. It erases the awful feelings. Grief is numbed and eased. Not the memories, but the pain is rubbed out a bit. And that has to be a good thing. Otherwise, you'd never be able to get on with life. Now, it's interesting that Ivan got a poem. You know, the academic got a poem. And John, his musical collaborator, got a song. And yet, Linda got both you know um she was his musical collaborator she was his poetic partner in many ways and you know it kind of it kind of makes sense you know driving rain has many songs that allude to Linda's death he wrote you know the whole garland for her as well both of you know we will cover in the future but it just seems fitting that Linda would be the one to encourage him to write poetry both in life and death. And whilst this book can be seen as a tribute to Linda, you know, it's one of of those things that he wanted to get done for her, I guess. Like so many other Linda-involved and Linda-based projects like Wings or Club Sandwich, that, you know, it's not a surprise that With her death, those pursuits came to an end. And, you know, it's over 20 years now since the release of this book, and we are yet to get another. Now, something I only found out about today, the day of recording, was that Adrian Mitchell was not the only person helping Paul with the editing of his poetry. Yes, Paul went straight to the top with his A list status to bring in a real heavy hitter of his own, namely one Allen Ginsberg. Of course, for anyone who has been living under a poetic rock for the last 70 years, I'll explain. Of course, Allen Ginsberg was one of the defining beat poets of American culture, with his epic poem Howl being one of the most iconic examples of the entire art form and was even the title for one of the names of the poetry nights that I attended in Birmingham. As Paul described in an interview with The Telegraph, though, his choice of poet may not have been as random as you think. He said... We used to hang out a bit with Allen Ginsberg in the 60s, and later on, during the last couple of years of his life, we became good friends. And he said to me, that Elmer Rigby is a fucking good poem, man. And you know what? Him meeting up with Paul does make a whole lot of sense, really. You know, they're both titans in their own respective fields, both which heavily feature the writing of words. And so how could they not rub off on each other? Well, it turns out that Ginsberg didn't rub off... All that much on Macca, at least not as much as as one would expect, as detailed in this article from the New York Times in 2001. It reads, Some years ago, Paul McCartney, famous musician and fledgling poet, took a deep breath and showed a selection of his poetic works in progress to his old friend, Alan Ginsberg. Ginsberg, who was visiting Mr McCartney at his house in Sussex, England, had some thoughts. He was all for economy, Sir Paul recently said, in his friendly Liverpudlian lilt, recalling his frisson of fear when Ginsberg took out his pencil and began cutting and tweaking. He said to me, never use the word the. Always try to avoid ing and don't use singing, but use sing instead. When Ginsberg suggested he change a poem beginning Two Doors Open on the 18th of July to Two Doors Open July 18th, the lyricist put his foot down. I said, it's great, but you're making me into a New York beat poet, and not at all like an Englishman, said Sir Paul, who kept a copy of the scribbled-over Ginsberg Variations, as he called them for posterity, though he took none of Ginsberg's suggestions. Now, despite Paul proving once again that any edits to his work are done extremely reluctantly, he and Ginsberg did get together shortly after for another collaborative effort entitled A Ballad of American Skeletons. This piece, with Ginsberg reading his words and Paul on his epiphone guitar, was performed by the two for an evening of poetry and performance at the Royal Albert Hall, entitled The Return of the Forgotten in 1995, which you will most certainly hear at the end of this episode, so stick around. Okay, before we close out this section, I just wanted to point out that around the time that this book was being compiled, put together, released and promoted, was all right in the midst of the Driving Rain sessions, as well as the promotion for the Wingspan box set. Once again, this proves that whilst Paul may be spinning other plates, it never takes away attention from his main dinner plate. Though, going off the reviews I've read and heard about Driving Rain, maybe it would have been better for him to focus on one or the other, at least at this time. Of course. Being around the driving rain era means that this is also when McCartney began another epoch, i.e. the beginning of his relationship with Heather Mills. And whilst no one in the fandom seems to like that woman at all, i got to say, I admire her fortitude during this time, because this book came out at the start of their relationship. But not only is this book full of poems about Linda and how great Linda is, but every interview from this period brings that point up and you know for her to have to deal with the other woman i guess as you could call Linda in that way does show that she you know she had her own strength i guess is what i want to say it's also worth pointing out that george harrison was dying of cancer around this time and sadly there is no poem for george here as he passed away just two months after the book's release and so we saw the first publication of Blackbird Singing in September of 2001. Of course, this was a particularly poor time to release anything, poetry book or otherwise, and it most certainly was overshadowed by the tragic events of that time. Events that Paul actually witnessed as it happens. Still though, on a slightly more positive note, and whilst I can't find specific sources to back this up, one of the articles from the New York Times did state that, and I quote, Blackbird Singing has been a bestseller in Britain, which means that, at least commercially, the book was reasonably successful. Next up, I'm just going to quickly run through the promotional tour that Paul went through for this release. And whilst Paul was dealing with you know, the recording of a new album and a new relationship, he still managed to do a surprising amount of work to make sure as many people knew about this book as possible. So, starting off, we had an interview with The Telegraph on March 10th, 2001, entitled Paul McCartney Unaccompanied. Then he did an interview with The Guardian newspaper on March 11th, 2001, called The Long and Winding Ode. Then Paul did a live poetry reading in his hometown of Liverpool on March 21st, where there were about 3,000 people in attendance and signed copies of the book were available. Then... On the 15th of April, 2001, an edition of the Los Angeles Times published an article entitled Five Poems by Paul McCartney. These poems were Mull of Kintyre, Black Jacket, Steel, This Is The Way and Full Moon's Eve. Then Paul did a live poetry reading in New York on April 24th, 2001, which is where the audio that we're going to be listening to today comes from. In that he did Ivan, In Liverpool, Dinner Tickets, Chasing the Cherry, Chico, Trouble Is, Maxwell Silver Hammer, Jerk of All Jerks, Here Today, City Park, Her Spirit, Black Jacket, and Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Then Paul appeared with Terry Gross on a radio broadcast called Poetry Corner on April 30th, 2001, which was a great help to this podcast, by the way. Then Paul did a reading of Blackbird and Why Don't We Do It in the Road at the Hay Festival here in England on the 30th of May, 2001. Then, whilst at the launch of the Adopt a Landmine Charity on uh, June 4th, 2001, Paul performed Jerk of All Jerks. Then, Paul's full interview with Charlie Rose came out on Monday, June 11th, 2001, and his interview with Larry King for CNN came out on Tuesday, June 12th, 2001. Now, before we get into the book itself, and what my own uneducated thoughts on it are, I think we should take a bit of time to look at some other people's takes on it. As, you know, we've already mentioned, poetry, possibly more so than any other art form, is highly open to interpretation and opinion, and so it is important for us to cast as wide a net as possible so that we can get as accurate a census as possible. Furthermore, I will say right off the top that the reviews for this work were not universally uplifting or anything close, and so I think over the next segment we're probably going to see why Blackbird Singing is, to date, McCartney's only publicly released book of poetry. Fortunately for this show though, unlike a load of Pauls more recent books or even albums, there's still a sizeable amount of literature available online from credible sources and from newspapers about it. Of course, it would be nice if Paul's book of poetry would make an appearance in Q magazine or Rolling Stone, but hey, you know, we can't have everything. However, it is clear that the Guardian newspaper took a particularly keen interest in this work. As it featured several times in the lead up to its release, the first of which, as I mentioned earlier, was an interview with The Guardian newspaper. You know it's not a review per se, but he spoke with Nicky Gerard, and you know whilst again it isn't a review, she did sneak in a little nugget about the songs being included in this book. She says it's the first time he has allowed his old songs to be reproduced like this they look a bit naked, don't they? And perhaps this marks his growing acceptance of his mythological past, a willingness to embrace what he, for many years, had turned away from. Now, she clearly hasn't listened to either Wings Over America or Tripping the Life Fantastic, if she's making those claims, but the important part of that is the naked comment. I think that's very interesting indeed, and it's something we are going to touch on later in this episode, but Even early on, it's clear that the intelligentsia and the media were not fully on board with the idea of these songs being called poems or being put alongside poems. Next up, we have the review that is included on McCartney's own website. This comes from Michael Horowitz from The Guardian on the 16th of March 2001. It reads, Most of these lyrics, like most worthwhile poems, will be as resonant long after we're all dead as when they were first released. Perhaps most notably the compassionate but unsentimental requiem for all the lonely people penned by Macca with a little help from his friends in 1966. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walked from the grave, no one was saved. One needn't chase the subtextual possibilities of nobody came, to the sense that it's not a million miles from Benjamin or Larkinland, or to see why William Burroughs admired McCartney's talent for packing such a wealth of narrative into so few lines, or why another distinguished novelist, A.S. Byatt, finds it a perfectly sung lyric with a minimalist perfection of a Beckett story. Yes, you can certainly tell why McCartney and or his people chose this one to be the go-to positive review for this book as not only is it overwhelmingly positive but it also validates his choice to include the lyrics and compares him to other great poets. Though, there was another part of the review that I wanted to include as it highlights the importance of Linda McCartney content in the book and how powerful it really is. It continues, About 20 pages are devoted to Paul's late wife and news and though they are uneven, sometimes because of their palpable sincerity, they contain meditative lines that will speak volumes to anyone who has experienced the solitary confinement that follows the loss of a soulmate. McCartney has observed how many of these poems stem from grief and bereavement, carrying a greater personal weight than some of the songs. However, the Guardian newspaper was not entirely... Chocolates and Roses, as another of their critics, John Kinsella, on the 28th of March, only two days later, gave a decidedly more critical take on the material. It reads, Only a hagiographer could have compiled this collection of McCartney's poems and lyrics. Of course, the people enjoy what he gives them. He is of the people. Once removed from the music, the lines have little rhythm. The timing is all wrong. And that's because the words aren't allowed to do the work themselves. That's what poetry is all about, and that's why song lyric and poem lyric don't always operate in the same space. There is nothing remotely radical or challenging in this book. You can't hide bad art behind the term popular poetry, and Mitchell's comparisons of McCartney to Blake and Burns are ludicrous. The lack of technical control over language and vernacular is evident even in the great song lyrics. Without the melody, They are strangely lifeless. The only reason I would encourage people to buy this book is in the hope that Faber might put some of the profits into the rest of their poetry list and support further publications by the significant poets they carry. Yeesh! (laughs) That's quite the statement there, folks, isn't it? And um, whilst I don't agree with how strong he is in these criticisms, I can't really call him wrong... I wouldn't say there's much radical or challenging in the book. It is more just for McCartney fans to enjoy, I guess. I know that sounds horrible, but sometimes the critics know what they're on about. That's all I'm saying. Yes, he's definitely gone over the top here, and there's no reason for him to kind of go for McCartney as harsh as he has, but um You know, Even as someone who loves McCartney's lyrics and his lyricism, I wouldn't call this a great book of poetry or anything. But, in Paul's defence, I don't think John Kinsella is actually that well versed in Paul's work. And the line that gave him away was this one. Despite the lack of sincerity in a poem like Looking for Changes Against Animal Testing, many of the pieces feel genuinely lacking, and yet Looking for Changes isn't a poem. It's a song. But regardless of whether this critic is overly familiar with the Off the Ground album or not, it's still clear that he thinks anyone who buys this book is blind to the idea of Paul's poetry being bad in the first place, which is probably true to some degree. We are all fans, we all want him to do well, and yes, a large majority of us are probably not as well-versed as Mr Kinsella here. But I do feel like he's giving Maca a far less charitable review than he otherwise could have been. Let's turn things back around with a more positive review. And whilst I haven't been able to read the whole thing because it's behind a paywall, here's a snippet of Stephen Logan's review in the Sunday Times. It reads, He's a genius with the common touch. Unlike more rarefied poets who communicate mostly with each other in obscure crannies of our culture, McCartney writes as freely and often as beautifully as a blackbird sings. Up next, we have Mark Hertzgard from the LA Times, and as a critic, he truly sets himself apart by starting off his article with the most cringeworthily wrong diatribe I've ever seen. It reads, McCartney, posing as a poet, will strike some as a ludicrous conceit. Does the world really need more verse from a man who pens such piffle as Silly Love Songs, Mull of Kintyre, and Morse Moose and the Grey Goose? Right, folks. None of those songs are anywhere near to piffle. And yet, a lot of this comes down to opinions, which is his job as a critic. But also, some opinions are just wrong, and this is one of them. Like, as a piece of writing, he does set himself up well in terms of letting us know what his opinions are, and where he's going to take the rest of the review thematically. But if you're going to criticise something objectively, then maybe don't come out swinging for one side right at the start of the review. Anyway. Let's see what else he has to say. He continues, Many of the poems in Blackbird Singing read as if they were dashed off in a single go and never revised. They're not so much bad as unfinished and inconsequential. Anti-Alarm Call, for example, is about staying in bed on a cold, wet morning. A promising enough subject, but after seven lines of such rhymes as 15 minutes more, what are you waiting for? It fizzles out with a limp conclusion better stay inside, hibernate and hide. An even shorter poem is Moon's Mandarin, a title that doubles as the opening line, and is followed by Orange Segment, stars as clear as you like, smelling of pines and eucalyptus, quite a night. There's nothing wrong with haiku, but this is not haiku. This writing smacks, instead of laziness, long a weakness of McCartney's as Lennon and others would have pointed out. Nevertheless, just as even the weakest of McCartney's solo albums invariably contains moments of brilliance, this book boasts a few gems in the rough. Black Jacket is a lovely, sparse evocation of the dialectics of grief, perhaps inspired by the passing of McCartney's wife Linda. Sadness isn't sadness, it's happiness in a black jacket. Death isn't death, it's life that jumped off a tall cliff. And Steel... At a mere 19 words, demonstrates that even extremely short poems can pack a punch if they're well constructed. Okay, he did get a little more complimentary towards the end there, meaning that the work, particularly the linda-based material, certainly does still have some merit. But he definitely does not consider the whole to be much to write home about, even if he does write an awful lot home about it. Though it's clear that his greatest criticism of Blackbird singing is that it suffers from a lack of editorial authority. He doesn't come right out and say it, but it's clear to me that he's basically saying that Adrian Mitchell should have been like Nigel Godrich during the Chaos and Creation sessions and told Paul to go back and polish off, or even completely rewrite, many of the poems. Though, what it also points towards is the fact that much of Paul's rewrites tend to come in the form of changes to melody and song structure, rather than his lyrics. And perhaps Paul should have done away with his one-and-done, the-magic-is-captured-the-first-time-around attitude and just done some rewrites. However, it would be way worse if Paul actually did do a lot of rewrites for these poems and people still felt like they were a little one-and-done. Who knows? In an article for ABC News, I was able to find a quote from Beatles biographer-slash-writer Hunter Davis and it's clear that he was appreciative of and not surprised with McCartney's entry into this part of the print world he says he always had literary leanings but he probably felt a bit inhibited I find his new poems rather moving and touching right now that we're done with the official critics let's have a look at some user reviews from the wider world of the wider web so we'll start off with a user whose name is so long that it has an ellipsis at the end and whose review is so old that their account no longer exists. This is eBay user UJUXUCH1QRQ at D-E-L dot dot dot. They say, I'm so happy that he included the lyrics from some of the songs. He has such a way of drawing pictures with words and making feelings come to life. Although there were a couple of poems that I didn't particularly care for. I think the same could be said of any poetry book, though, no matter who wrote it. He really put his heart out there in the poem he wrote for John Lennon and the one he wrote for Linda. They are both beautiful pieces. And, of course, the book would not be complete without the looks to Hey Jude that he wrote for Julian. Paul is, and always has been, an incredible writer. Now, this is the exact kind of consumer review that MPL loves to court. Like, the reviewer here is clearly content with having lyrics for songs that they've already heard before and read before thousands of times, and and the fact that they are now in an official book is a complete novelty for them. I mean, I do wonder how much of a fan this person was seeing as how they called Here Today a Poem and said that there was only one poem for Linda, despite the fact that there's a, there's a whole chapter. But, you know, whatever. I'm glad this person enjoyed the book, even if they weren't concerned about the whole poetry, which is the whole conceit of the project, but that could be said for many people buying this book. Though I do agree with their point that, you know, if you don't like some poems, that's probably going to be the same with any poetry book you ever buy. Next up, and we have a review from a very special person to me, as not only is she one of my longest term Patreon patrons, but she also regularly sends me editing suggestions for early access episodes in time for me to alter them before they go public. Her name is Teresa Breda, And I just so happened to find her on goodreads.com. She says, This 2001 collection is probably only for the fans. Some of the poems are touching and effective, especially those dealing with Linda's death. Most of the lyrics set forth as poems don't work as such for me. I know them too well as songs, and I can only read them with their melodies in my head. That doesn't take away their power, as melody has always been Paul's forte. In the poem Meditate, a couplet jumped out to me as a homage to proof Rock, Shall I fear to now repeat words that whistled down our street? Finding that was fun. My impetus to read this now was the announcement of Paul McCartney's autobiography in lyrics coming out near the end of next year. Whilst writing this review, I'm listening to his 2007 album Memory Almost Full. It's not one of my favourites, but several of the songs have great lyrics that I imagine will be included. Well, first things first, Teresa. How did the whole hoping-for-memory-almost-full songs to be included in the lyrics-book thing pan out for you? Not too well, I imagine. Aw, come on, Sam, that's mean. But, you know, I'm probably just being aggressive, you know, as a way to deflect from the fact that I don't even know who Prufrock is. Oh, shit, okay. A quick cursory Google search shows that Prufrock is the name of a T.S. Eliot poem. Oh wow, I cannot believe someone as learned it as you, Teresa, listens to this poxy podcast. But yeah, a cracking little review from you there. And spoiler alert, it more or less mirrors my views to a T. Once I read the phrase, probably only for the fans, I knew that we were on the same level. And I agree with you that the best material, sadly, is the stuff that directly relates to Linda. Cheers, Teresa. Thank you for everything you do for the the pod. See you around. And finally, we're going to move on to another review from Goodreads.com now, this time from user Adam. And yeah, this chap also seems to be in line with the general consensus surrounding every aspect of this book. He says, I am unimpressed. The introduction of this book entreats us to forget Paul McCartney, the musician, and focus on Paul McCartney, the poet. If that was the goal the lyrics should have been left out, or at least they should have been presented in a separate section. I've heard and enjoyed McCartney's songs since infancy, and I've heard the stories behind many of those songs, and again, it's just not possible for me to divorce the lyrics from all that history. Instead, Beatles' lyrics, Wings' lyrics and McCartney's solo lyrics are interspersed with poems with no nods to chronological order, which might have shed some light on the development of his poetic voice or shown how his very public work compared to more private efforts from the same era, if there is such an overlap. And frankly, the poetry is mediocre. Take away the juvenile wordplay and weak metaphors and you won't be left with much. Sorry, Paul, your words just don't work as well without music. Wow, that is damning, that really is damning. Um... Of course, it, like again, we are going to talk about the idea of the lyrics being presented as poems, but it's clear that many people were just not that into it. Probably me being amongst them, though, again, not as fervently aggressive as that. Um, juvenile wordplay, weak metaphors. I like to give Paul the benefit of the doubt, but if I was a little more well-read in poetry, maybe I'd be making... The same comments as well but regardless of whether the poems but regardless of whether the songs should be presented as poems i do understand the idea that it is impossible to separate them as such and whilst the book is meant really meant to be for mccartney fans the people who would probably get the most out of reading the songs lyrics as poems would be people who have never heard them before, which is a bit of an oxymoron. I don't really see this book being bought by many non-fans. And the idea of presenting this in chronological order is a bit of a moot point, really, because obviously, as we know, Ivan would have been written after the death of Ivan Vaughan, and a lot of the Linda stuff would have been written after the the death of Linda. So it would have just been Beatles lyrics, then Wings lyrics, then solo lyrics, and then all the poems, which... (sighs) I really don't think would have worked in terms of structure at all. But hey, it's an in- an interesting thought, you know. Right, folks, I'd like to say that that was an even 50-50 split in terms of good and bad reviews, but I think that that would just be sugarcoating the issue. The book did not go down well with critics or the literary community at large, and it seems that only people already emotionally invested in McCartney would get much out of it. However, as with most obscure McCartney product his fan base is so large that it will still sell more than most of the other competing product in the same field and so the criticism is borderline null and void he really is commercially at least critic proof even if personally he isn't in the interview with Charlie Rose Paul declined to really comment on critics and cited too many experiences where you know musicians spend far too much of their dinner time talking about them but in the interview with Larry King, McCartney directly responded to the criticisms levelled at Blackbird singing. He said, The critics are always mixed with me. I always say they sharpen their pencils when they see me coming. But I don't care. You know, they criticize Sergeant Pepper. And look at what happened to that. Okay, folks. Now let us move on to the actual book itself, the content without and within. And as always, we're going to talk about the very first thing we encounter with any book, which is the cover. And with Blackbird Singing, there are at least three. So I'll go through all of them now. The first one, and the one I reckon you've most likely already seen, is the one with the white slip cover. And when I say white, I mean white. I mean, the whole thing is bare, bar for a single tiny blackbird, with the title Blackbird Singing in yellow, going across horizontally, and the subtitle Poetry and Lyrics, 1965-1999, to in blue and red. Whilst not my most favourite book cover ever, it's probably my favourite of the lot, and I'd argue that it's the most effective at conveying the contents within. You know, it's supposed to just be about the words, with no other musical or written accompaniment, and the blank white cover really sells that. Plus, the words Paul McCartney are nice and big enough to draw you in and pick up the book, and then... It leaves it up to you whether you're intrigued about the prospect of poetry, and you can take it from there. The second cover, a latter reprint from 2002, also a softback. Yeah, this one is much more straightforward and easily recognisable as a Paul McCartney work designed to catch the more casual fan's eye with his familiar face. As you may have guessed, this one just features a picture of Paul on the cover It kind of school photo setup, ways where he's looking all serious and artsy, which is a lot less artistic, and clearly has been done to sell more books than be a creative image. Though he is barefoot, which may be some attempt to show that he's bearing himself somewhat, but it's still very generic. And then finally, you have the special edition version of the book, of which only, like, 250 copies were made, and someone I speak to on Facebook actually has one I was making me feel very, very lame for not having one. Um, These were all numbered and signed by the Big Mac himself. They are very pricey now, going for upwards of $4,000 on eBay over the years, probably more now, which, considering people paid like five grand for the lyrics book, doesn't surprise me at all. And like said lyrics book, this has its own unique cover. Basically, this one has a maroon background, And in the centre, it has what can only be described as a quintessentially 90s, early 2000s photograph of Paul in the centre, complete with his awful late 90s hair and pre-Stella McCartney fashion sense, with this awfully oversized grey coat and the most gauche orange scarf you've ever seen. Like, again, I can't tell if he's going for a learned scholar look here, Or just windswept and interesting, but it's delightfully goofy. It's probably my second favourite cover of the three. But not because I think it's particularly good, but because it it is a wonderful time capsule of this awkward image phase of McCartney's career. Right, now that we've looked at the front of the book, let's go into it. And starting off with the actual content... Uh, this is something I actually found to be very interesting, actually. Rather surprisingly, the first thing after the title page, before you even get to the contents or the foreword or the introduction, you have the complete words to Blackbird, the song Blackbird, which is incredibly significant and very effective, as it truly highlights the importance of these words above all others in the book. You have to read the words to Blackbird before you even know what else is in the book and this is no accident and you have to ponder why McCartney chose to do this was it because it's his favourite lyric I mean there is an argument to be made that Blackbird is one of if not the best example of one of his lyrics that also reads like a poem it was also the one that Adrian Mitchell first used back in the day when he published it as well so maybe it's a hinting at how this whole thing began it's also one of his best known lyrics, and so it would make sense to be an ambassador for the book. Of course, it also reflects the title, and maybe implies that McCartney himself is the Blackbird singing in the Dead of Night also. Uh, I'd be interested to know whether this decision was Paul's or Adrian Mitchell's, though, and whether it came before or after the title. It also makes me wonder whether this was before... Adrian Mitchell decided to include the entire explanation to the song "Blackbird" in his intro. Um, you know, maybe it's just the fact that there was nowhere else for this poem to go. Maybe it didn't fit into any of the other slots, but I doubt it. Um, I just think it's really cool that they would be so bold as to put one of the lyric slash poems so early in the text, and you know, distance itself from all the other works in there and really highlight it as something special. Again, not sure why they did it, but it's still damn effective. Pressing on to the first piece of expected content in this book now, I will start things off with the foreword by Sir Paul McCartney. And despite this book being 20 years old, it reads exactly the same as the foreword for the Get Back 50th Anniversary Coffee Table book or his intro for the lyrics book. Like the Get Back book, this one is incredibly short and to the point, and yet it still uses his trademark conservation of words to say, oh so much. There are three brief paragraphs, the first and last being four lines long, and the second being a whopping five. The first, details with Paul's childhood experience with poetry, you know, sending in a poem to his school magazine and being rejected, and him trying to get back at that notion over all these years, and... You know, by this point, you really should be able to make up your own mind whether he has achieved getting his own back by now, but, you know, it does highlight, no matter how successful he is, maybe he will will never be able to be good enough to get in that school magazine. The second deals with the death of Ivan Vaughan, who, as we've mentioned already, um, inspired the whole thing, and how his death, you know, got him back into poetry, and the final one is just a, a little quick nod to how the book was put together, and how adrian mitchell quote-unquote persuaded him to include the song lyrics one of which you have just read and he really lays on thick the notion that they are both poems as they have and i quote an equal capacity to convey meaning and depth again in so few words paul bequeaths upon you the exact mindset he was going through when putting out this book and hopefully the right mindset you should have when going into it yourself do I wish you to put something out a little more detailed, like the lyrics book essay? Yes, that certainly would have been nice, it would have panned out the book a bit as well. But fortunately, there were so many other interviews around that time that we do get to hear the entire process in a little more detail, either way. Pressing on, and in another parallel with the lyrics book, we get the introduction and it's a little more lengthier, written by its editor, this time Adrian Mitchell. Now, I've already quoted a lot of this section already over this episode, so. I'll be a little briefer here than probably I would have normally been. But, you know, there are still certain details that I haven't touched on, so we will go through them now. And whilst he does do a great job in filling you in on the key details and information about the book, one thing I would say about Mitchell is that he certainly does downplay his own role in putting the final book together. Like, he really doesn't over-egg uh his contributions he begins the story with how he met the beatles and his continued relationship with paul this then goes into his friendship with linda and how that spawned the creation of the book one moment i did like particularly was how he he even called linda a poet citing a lyric from the light comes from within one of her songs he then talks about publishing five of paul's poems in the new statesman Then he goes into a lengthy segment about justifying the inclusion of song lyrics as poems, professing the poeticism of rock and roll when compared to the bland beige music that came before. This then goes nicely into how the Beatles basically changed songwriting and lyric writing forever and the sense of freedom that they created in the art world. And this leads into the idea that the Beatles had continued to work off and brought to the pop culture forefront. Radical work of poets such as Dylan Thomas, Allen Ginsberg, and Mike Horowitz. And how poetry, from this point onwards, was open to people of all ages, genders, races, and ethnicity. And how it, it isn't just all stuffy old white men in a book where the author is an old white man who could not be more part of the establishment if he tried. But I appreciate the narrative he's trying to craft here. And, what you know, it's not in as much detail as Hanif Qureshi's intro at the start of the Get Back book, but it does the job. Though, I did find one line that did resonate with me particularly. It read, The old snobbery still exists. Just study the more respectable anthologies, and you might still think that poetry is for intellectuals and academics only well, as an intellectual and academic myself. and uh, I can't even do that joke. <laughs> the next segment is all about how amazing Paul is. He talks about Paul's influences, including Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams, Bernard Shaw, Sheridan and Hardy, and compares Paul's own writings to that of Brian Patton, Carol Ann Duffy, who I did study at school, actually, Elvis Costello, Randy Newman and Laurie Anderson. He calls the writing of poetry when compared to songwriting to that of dancing naked, so that there is a difference then, Adrian. Anyway, he goes on to call Paul brave for doing this in the first place, which I agree with to some extent, but then again, how brave does the writer of Yesterday, Eleanor Rigby, and Hey Jude really need to be? Then, very interestingly, Nearly the entire next page of the book is taken from another classic Paul McCartney written work in the form of a very lengthy quote from Barry Miles' book Many Years From Now. The quote is Paul's explanation for the inspiration of Blackbird, aka the song of which the book is titled, and it's a nice setup to show us that Paul really does think about each of these topics. You know, there's a lot of forethought, you know, a lot more than you'd expect. There's a lot more planning, and it's very purposeful. And, you know, it's to, it's basically to take away from the myth of, you know, oh, it's all just magic, he writes them on the spot and doesn't really think about it. And, you know, it's almost like set up for the criticisms that did flow in, that, like, some of this poetry is a bit one and done and didn't have rewrites. Maybe Adrian's trying to get in front of that. Probably didn't work, but, again, I'm sure Paul appreciated the effort. And, <laughs> It's pretty ballsy, I must say, to have a fifth of your introduction be from someone else's book, but I can see why it was included, as not only is it one of Paul's best backstories, but it also just positions him in a very positive light. One of the last lines of this intro was, again, very resonant for me, as it basically summed up the entire book in terms of my experience and what I saw as the best material. It reads, Paul knows how words can work during the deepest grief, not just as therapy, but as a way of speaking to and for the others who have lost their loved ones. For what it's worth, this was a very serviceable introduction, but I feel like the tone was a little too pleading, and it could have been a little more self-confident, and less anticipatory of criticism. Like, again, maybe he was trying to avoid allegations of pretentiousness, but that was at the expense of a more dignified welcoming into a new McCartney world. Like, Adrian... If you think Paul's good enough, and the lyrics are good enough, let more of that do the speaking for itself. Maybe just explain how and why the book is ordered, you know. I feel like if Paul Muldoon had written this, he would have been able to give Paul all the requisite fanfare, and not have to do as much justification, but that's just me. Anyway, after a long-ass time talking about anything but the actual content of the book, despite the fact that it makes 95% of the book, we can now talk about the actual contents within, aka songs, lyrics, poems, stuff you paid for. And exactly how much new content is there in this book? Well, Blackbird Singing contains 52 song lyrics, 22 from the Beatles era, 30 from McCartney's solo years, and 45 poems proper. Yeah, if you're hoping for a book of mostly poems with a few key lyrics sprinkled in for effect, then you will be sorely disappointed here. Yes, the majority of the material from this book is reprinted material that you've already read before, or heard before, which does cut down the amount of time I have to spend reviewing the actual poems themselves, but uh, it does beg the question why they didn't just release the poems as a smaller, less intrusive piece of art, you know, make it super cheap and... Hopefully, that lack of cost may have helped it curry some favour from potential poetry and art critics. Speaking of lyrics, though, of course, one of the most interesting things about this book, slash controversial, is the idea that so many songs that we know as songs, famous songs, are being displayed as poems in the poetry format. Now, if you decide to meet Paul halfway, at least, this does allow you to approach material that you are supposedly already extremely familiar with, and interpret it wholly anew. I mean, I remember back at school when we had a poetry collection book that featured Lennon's In My Life as a Poem, and I remember back then how cool that was, and with Blackbird Singing, you get that book by the bucket load in terms of uh, Beatles and solo McCartney songs, and yet some immediately work better than others, but Before we talk about the song specifically, let's just talk about the fact that Paul originally didn't want to include lyrics, as he felt like it would be sheet music, and he had to, again, be persuaded by Adrian Mitchell to even perceive them as poems. In his introduction, Mitchell even says the following, Whenever critics say that there is something inferior about the poetry which is sung, my advice is to sing Blake's Tiger, or Burns's Oh My Love's Like a Red Rose at Them. A few songwriters, even though they know that they can get away with banal nothingness in pop lyrics, do have a vision and try to convey it to us. A few manage to write truthfully about the world. Being fully converted by Mitchell, Paul spends a lot of his promotion claiming that there really isn't a difference between writing a song and writing a poem, but that the writing of a poem might feel more personal. Though when he reads the lyrics live, he still is aware enough to point out that it is a strange and different experience than if it was just a poem, or if you were singing it. Going back to Paul's Forward, he mentions that he hopes we will agree with his and Mitchell's idea that lyrics and poems carry the same weight and function, but going back to Mark Hertzgaard in the LA Times, who was not very complimentary of this book, he does uh, offer up a nice counterpoint, which serves... To raise up Paul's poems, but also deny some of the the poetry in the lyrics, he writes, Which is not to say that poetry and lyrics are interchangeable, because words in a lyric acquire extra force from the music surrounding them, while the words of a poem must succeed entirely on their own. One can argue that poetry is the more difficult form to master. To me, there are two distinct types of songs come poems that did stand up on their own. Funnily enough, the first type were the songs that seemed at first to be a little wordy and atypical in their vocal melody. Songs like Figure of Eight, The Note You Never Wrote, She's Leaving Home, Junior's Farm, Rocky Raccoon, or the song that we were singing. Suddenly, these songs felt like they had a new lease of life in the written format. I felt that certain lines had a new punctuation or just hit in a way that they never had before. Then the other type of songs that worked were just the ones with the very basic vocal melody that was strong enough without the instrumentation. Songs like Heart of the Country, When I'm 64, Junk, Mull of Kintyre and Yellow Submarine felt like they had been part of you know, young junior schools English literature slash poetry textbooks for as long as the art form had existed. They felt very classic in that way. Another song that was particularly effective on the page was Nova, which was a song that only exists as part of the Garland for Linda tribute concert, which in its original form is a grand, if quite impenetrable, orchestral tune, but when simply read as words, you really can tell just how touching and heartbreaking it really is. The songs that failed, though, were the ones that basically did not fit into either of those two previous categories. These were songs that rely too much on their instrumentation for their enjoyment, that have no playful bounce to them lyrically, or the words are just sparse and feel kind of flat when they land. I mean, key examples to me, which is rather odd considering how much they were used in the promotional material, were Here Today and Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Actually, let's just take a listen to a live recording of both so you can hear for yourselves what I mean. Take it away, Paul. And yes, that was a tug-of-war joke.
1: Um, when, when, this book, <clears throat> when this book came out in England, obviously I got the few uh, sniffy critics that I'm always gonna get. They, they don't like me stepping out of my chosen field. Uh, but what the hell, I wanna do it so tough. Um, <laughs> and one of the problems they had was the inclusion of lyrics in this. And one of them started his, uh, his critique by saying, uh, strike your most poetic stance, swell your chest, lift your head high, stiffen your backbone, and try and imagine reading these lyrics with a serious face. So I got a bit brought down by that, uh, you know, this is what's, but my editor Adrian said, he said, you, you kidding? He said, you know that kind of poetry went out with the Victorians? He said, don't "Don't they remember the beat poets and Liverpool poets and all the various... So I was reassured by that, and uh, so I'm going to dare to read a lyric now. Uh, (laughs) The first line of this uh, refers to the study of pataphysics, which which I think was invented by Alfred Jarry, uh, a French dadaist... And it's not a real science, in fact, I think the Society of Pataphysicians, their most important position is the chair of beer. So, uh, <laughs> he's got my vote. Um, now here we go. This is called Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> Joan was quizzical, studied pataphysical science in the home. Late nights, all alone with a test tube. Oh, 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 ho. Oh. <laughs> Maxwell Edison, majoring in medicine, calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures, Joan? But as she's getting ready to go, a knock comes on the door. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer. Came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer made sure that she was dead. Back in school again, Maxwell plays the fool again. Teacher gets annoyed. Wishing to avoid an unpleasant scene, she tells Max to stay when the class has gone away. So he waits behind, writing 50 times, I must not be so, oh ho ho. (laughs) But when she turns her back on the boy, he creeps up from behind. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer made sure that she was dead. There's more, there's more. (laughs) PC31 said, we've caught a dirty one. Maxwell stands alone, painting testimonial pictures, oh, ho, ho, ho. Rose and Valerie, Screaming from the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a can of worms. We'll cut that, okay? All right, Rose and Valerie screaming from the gallery say he must go free. The judge does not agree, and he tells them so. Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. But as the words are leaving his lips, a noise comes from behind. Bang bang, Maxwell's silver hammer came down upon his head. Bang bang, Maxwell's silver hammer made sure that he was dead. <laughs> Thank you. Again, with reference to John, um who loved New York City so much and it's good to be here in what was his second city I think and uh, with this reading to part to pay tribute to him uh, this this next piece is a lyric and John and I hadn't seen each other for a while uh, thank God before he died we we did make up so I was really happy about that because to, to have not done that uh, would have been terrible for me. But um, after all our battles, we were making up, and I made up a song, an imaginary conversation with him. Uh, and it refers to crying. That was one night when we were on tour and we'd got diverted from Jacksonville where we were supposed to play because of a hurricane. So. We had to go down and spend uh, a night in Key West, and uh, so we didn't see much of it, but uh, we kind of stayed up all night and drank and talked and did all crazy things, ended up crying. Um, It's called Here Today, and if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be if you were here today? Well, knowing you, you'd probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart if you were here today. But as for me, I still remember how it was before, and I'm holding back the tears no more. I love you. What about the time we met? Well, I suppose that you could say that we were playing hard to get, didn't understand a thing, but we could always sing. What about the night we cried? because there wasn't any reason left to keep it all inside. Never understood a word, but you were always there with a smile. And if I say I really loved you and was glad you came along, then you were here today, for you were in my song. So, as you'd heard just there, there was hardly a sliver of the emotive
2: resonance from the actual recordings, and the result is just cringeworthy. Like, yeah, I didn't want Paul to talk-sing the songs in a kind of William Shatner-esque way, but it does highlight how fundamentally the two art forms are not as interchangeable as he would have led us to believe. Songs like Here Today do have a rhythm that you you could keep to faithfully, somewhat, I suppose, but those songs rely not just on the vocal melody per se, but in the specific way that Paul sings them and the way he moves from one line to another. Sadly, in these cases, his quirky style and charm is totally lost in the translation from audio to the page. Other songs that fall equally flat in this regard include The Fool on the Hill, Hey Jude, Carry That Weight, and Golden Earth Girl. Just as a little aside for a second, one of the songs in the book had not even had an official release, at least outside of the uh, subsequent archive editions, and it's actually one of my favourite obscure solo McCartney songs, being It's Not On, and it's actually listed as Not On. It also has two extra lines, which was absolutely insane, as it gives the song a whole extra layer of pathos and meaning and emotion to the overworked, underpaid, frustrated main character and it was certainly a cute little highlight for a nerd such as myself. Anyway, rather interestingly though, the songs and the poems are not separated into separate categories, and instead we are grouped into nine loose thematic chapters, with the lengthy Standing Stone lyrics taking up an entire chapter of its own. Though, I would say that this is the right move, as with the lyrics book, as it highlights the fact that the poems and the songs are meant to be perceived as the same. And, you know, it means that his solo work and his poetry work and his Beatles work are all meant to be viewed in the same kind of way. Right. Now, folks, finally, we're going to specifically talk about the poems of this book. And, look, I'll just address... Right off the top that I'm mostly going to be addressing ones that I've got audio for. As I know many of you will have not read the book, or at least you had, but maybe not for a while. But I will briefly touch on some of the other ones that are available in the book later on, so listen out for that. Now, having just mentioned it, the first thing I did want to point out is that this book is the polar opposite to Paul McCartney, The Lyrics. Yes, it basically is just a collection of artistic words written by Paul McCartney, but the effect and intent could not be more disparate. With the lyrics, it was the text complete with explanations and personal thoughts coming right from the source, right from the horse's mouth. And so there really wasn't any room for interpretation outside of what we felt was the truth or not, what was misremembered or not, and what was omitted or not. However, with Blackbird singing, the only context we get is on the back cover, the little half-page forward, and Adrian Mitchell's short introduction, meaning that the poetry of the book is presented without any context, any explanation as to what it might mean. All you get are the words of the poems, nothing more. And this totally makes sense, as poems are not meant to have definitive answers. Okay, some of them are pointed morphs in a single direction but you know the majority of these poems can really just be left up and open to interpretation which is very effective although as you're going to see in terms of the audio clips that I use whenever Paul reads one of these poems live he does give the definitive explanation as to what it means and where it comes from so if you are interested in reading Paul McCartney's poetry and interpreting it for yourself without any outside sources, then maybe switch off the podcast here. Go buy it and go read it, and then maybe come back. Also, just before we begin the more analytical portion of the show, I did just want to point out something McCartney said in an article on the CNN website. Basically, he claimed that some of the poems in this book may yet turn out to be future songs. Specifically, he said, One or two of them are lyrics that no one knows are songs because I haven't recorded them yet. Now, aside from Not On, which was recorded during the pubs of Peace sessions, I don't think we've actually had any of these poems come out as songs, have we? I mean, the song Early Days from New certainly has a through line with some of the more nostalgic poems from the early section of this book, But I don't think we've had any direct translations from poem to song, at least that I'm aware of. If I am wrong, or if you have any crazy theories, drop me an email at paulmacartneypod at gmail.com and let me know what's what. Now, let's have a look at some of the key poems. And thankfully for me, I'm blessed by the fact that Paul does all of the explanations, uh, you know, in terms of discussing what these poems mean and it makes it much easier for me to discuss as there is some context to work with. So, yeah, let's just dive right in. The very first poem in the book is called In Liverpool. In fact, it's the very first thing in the book after Blackbird, except for the you know contents, the forward and introduction. And it's in the chapter titled Playing at Home. You could see it as something that Paul wrote to kind of work as a sister to Penny Lane as it details his memories of his hometown. Let's take
1: a listen. Uh, Sticking with the Liverpool theme, uh, in my early days, you'd see all sorts of sights. probably probably like New York here, you'd see all sorts of things as you're growing up that stick in your mind. And the next poem I'm gonna read is about those early days. Kind of thing you'd see with people over in England, we call them nutters, Crazy, crazy people you just see everywhere. And uh, I was always fascinated by these people. I remember sitting uh, upstairs, I refer to some of these things in the poem. There was this bloke on a bus, and he was just sitting there, a the crowded top deck of a bus, and he's just sitting in an empty seat next to him, and he was in front of me. And he was just repeating comedians' names, not talking to anyone, and he'd just sort of sit there, he'd just go, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> everyone would try and keep a straight face, and you know, oh my God. There you go. Jimmy Durante. <laughs> so this went on. This, uh, These kind of guys were rife where I came from. Um, kind of thing, I, I'd take my bus from a place called the Pier Head, which was down uh, by the river. I mainly went down there to get it because I could make sure I had a good seat on the bus, otherwise when it reached the school, uh, it was packed. So I used to go down there, and it was like the speaker's corner There would be the people arguing about religion. This kind of thing stuck with me, and that's in the poem. Um, memories like, uh, my mother was a midwife, so uh, our house was always being built. We were always, she was always being moved out to the new territory, like pioneers. Uh, I remember this dog called Prince with one eye. Anyway, all all these memories uh, are in the poem. It's called In Liverpool. I spent my early life in Liverpool, something I'm not likely to forget. People blend with places, faces that I know but never met. Upstairs on a bus behind a man, talking to himself, or so it seemed, repeating names of old comedians and laughing at them. Down the pier head where the preachers meet, each of them his own imagined crowd, giving us his version of the book that God had written. In a house before they built the road, raising jam jars for a worthy cause, Prince, the dog with one eye to his name, wants to follow. By the sports field of the institute lives Soft Sid, the harmless village fool, greeting children who pass the other side, saying... Hello children, listening to the bin man holding court, promising to buy a brand new bike, king of little children for a day. He gives them money, walking with the boys of Dungeon Lane aimlessly towards a muddy shore, telling tales about the Chinese farm and getting captured. I spent my early days in Liverpool, something I'm not likely to forget. People blend with places and the faces that I know but never met in Liverpool. Thank you.
2: Thanks. So yeah, as you just heard there, this poem is full of the exact same expert world-building and snapshot imagery that makes songs like Café on the Left Bank and Distractions so evocative, and Paul definitely manages to build a very vivid world in your mind. You know, it feels real, lived in, and honest, and you know that these, you know, moments are significant memories to Paul in a very incorporeal, artistic way, but that really is it in terms of, you know, what there is to enjoy about this poem. I don't know about you, but There doesn't seem to be any flow or lyrical quality to the words, and instead it reads much more as a boorish list of events, rather than the kind of tapestry as it probably should be. Like, the words just don't have rhythm or indicate how it should be read or expressed, and I think that's why it comes across as stilted as it does. All the right ideas and images are there, but it's sadly undercut by quite a bland style. Let's move on to something a little more personal now in the form of Ivan, the poem about his friend Ivan Vaughan that inspired this whole project to begin with. It's taken from the chapter simply titled Yesterday.
1: Take it, Paul. Two doors open on the 18th of June, two babies born on the same day in Liverpool. One was Ivan, the other me. We met in adolescence and did the deeds they dared us do. Jive with Ive, the ace on the base. He introduced to me, at Walton Fate, a pal or two. And so we did. A classic scholar he, a rockin' roller me. As firm as friends could be. Cranlock navel, cranlock pie. A tear is rolling down my eye. On the 16th of August, 1993, One door closed. Bye-bye, Ivy. All right, that's it. Thank you.
2: Ivan is an interesting poem right from the outset, as it and here today make up a real yin and yang of this book, two sides of the same coin, as they both deal with the death of a friend, but... One comes out as a song, one comes out as a poem. And whereas Here Today reads awfully as a poem, Ivan comes across as a very earnest and sincere artistic statement in the right form, and actually containing the right words. It's clear that with Here Today as a song, as well as the rest of the Linden material in this book, that grief is an incredible force behind McCartney's art, and it does allow him to create material that is above the average that he creates for himself. The poem beginning with two doors opening and ending with one door closing was a particularly tragic notion for me, and the way Paul even uses some of Ivan's quirky, unexplained turns of phrase felt like something that really conveyed a sense of loss when it comes to a a true close friend like that. As harsh as it seems to say, I I think when it comes to the songs that are inspired by death, maybe Paul sets himself a higher standard and does do more rewrites than maybe on some of the other poems we see here. Like, you know, he does want to get it right for Ivan, for Linda, and and I do get that. And it's so immediately obvious that this poem is just a lot more purposeful and thought out than some of the others, When speaking of this poem in an interview with The Guardian, Paul again alluded to the fact that many of the poems in this book have the potential to become a song. He said, Ivan is rhythmic and staccato. It has a jaunty kind of melancholy to it. You can imagine it as a song lyric, something in the minor key. And I agree with Paul here. There is a real stop-start to the way the poem is read out loud and it allows each line to kind of resonate and stick with you just for a moment before moving on to the next one. I know Paul said that he isn't an American beat poet, but I think that this one arguably comes closer to that delivery than any of the other poems in this book. And again, it's because McCartney knows exactly what he wants to say. It isn't to the point because of a fluke or by chance, it's written that way by design and the effect and the emotive impact on the audience is all the more effective because of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one, folks. Very impressed indeed. And as the old poetry adage goes, it is powerful now as it was when it was written. Next up, we have another poem that references Paul's childhood. This is called Dinner Tickets, and it can also be found in the Yesterday chapter. Again, let's hear Paul give The explanation.
1: This next poem is also about my early life in Liverpool. My mother and father used to buy us dinner tickets and you got five, one for each day of the week, and uh, the the working week, the school week, and um, each each one bought you a, a dinner. So she would always check in case there was one left over or for some reason I'd missed, so she could use that for the next week. So she would always look in the breast pocket of my school shirt. And one day she found this drawing. I used to be quite good at drawing these nude ladies. Uh, uh, you know, slightly perverted, but only slightly. And um, all the, it was a boys school I went to and all the guys in the class used to love these because when the paper was folded, it was just a clothed lady. But when you open the paper, she jumped in. <laughs> and um that was okay for the guys in class but uh i say my mom found this drawing while she was looking for the dinner tickets one day and there was three days of shame well i denied it of course me no it must have been kenny halpin it's typical of his drawing but um and uh, i eventually had to admit it my dad was brought in on the case and uh <laughs> I had to admit the whole thing, and um, I I cried. But but, uh, the way I've done the poem, I thought of this poem while I was out in the woods, working in the woods, which is one of my hobbies. So it's intercut with uh, scenes from the woods. It's called Dinner Tickets. My mother always looked for dinner tickets in the breast pocket of my gray school shirt. Dried mud falls from my work boots. Zigzag sculptures leave a trail as I head for the woods. She found a folded drawing of a naked woman. My father asked me about it. Chainsaw makes easy work of young birch blocking my path. The days I denied all knowledge of the shocking work of art. Resting on a fallen log, I wiped the sweat from my brow. Admitting I made the drawing, I wept. That's it.
2: (laughs) Now, this is another example of Paul drawing from very specific moments in his life and, correctly or incorrectly, attributing a great amount of artistic significance to them. The story itself is definitely one that is more interesting to him as a writer than as the reader, but it's very charming for what it is, and the feelings of warm nostalgia are very palpable. The artsy-fancy part of the poem, though, is, as Paul pointed out, the intercutting of his woodlands regime exercise with the story from the past, and I'm rather torn about how I feel about it. Part of me feels like it's a forced way to connect the past with the present, You know, something that seemed like a good idea at the time, but probably should have been dropped with the first rewrite. But also, the intercutting does give the poem a very typically McCartney-esque cinematic quality, where you can picture the older Paul running through the woods and recalling his past life. And the fragmented back and forth does kind of feel like a genuine reflection of what it does feel like to recall flashes of one's memories. So... Yeah, I'm really on the fence about about this one, folks. Uh, is it effective or is it a bit kitsch? You know, let me know. Next poem is, again, based in Liverpool and is one that is delightful as it is brief. It's called Chaiko
1: and it's taken from the All the Lonely People chapter. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, with this poem, this is a silly thing I came up with, but I was imagining if Tchaikovsky uh, had lived in Liverpool (laughs) and I was imagining that he'd kind of lived down our street and that one of the guys down the street was talking about him. I've got to do this in a Liverpool accent. This is an imaginary tale that a neighbor of mine might tell. I knew Tchaikovsky. He lived around our way. He was dead good at music, they used to say. I called him Chico the Psycho.
2: (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, Paul's best poems are the ones where they are as short as possible and he's able to bring his mastery of brevity and wit to bear with full force and whilst this poem isn't the best example of that in the book it certainly still typifies what wonders paul can do when he's purposefully restricting himself it has an immediacy that throws you right into the middle of the dialogue which is always very exciting and the way he so accurately captures the liverpudlian dialogue and brogue is marvellous to me, this poem was clearly formed from a little pun-based dialogue in Paul's head when he realised he could rhyme Jago with Psycho, and like so many of his songs, the rest is history. Though, instead of building a whole song around it, he instead just wrote a couple of lines, and I think it's far more effective because of it. Now, from a very short poem, we move on to one of the longer pieces from this reading, and it's one that did catch me off guard with how unlike Paul it sounded when I first heard it. This one is taken from the In the World Tonight chapter, and I reckon it will even please the most ardent poetry haters that are still listening to this episode for some reason. But yeah, this one's very good, folks. I think you really will enjoy this one.
1: It's called Chasing the Cherry. Let's go. Okay, this next poem is... (laughs) What was funny about that? (laughs) I give in. This could be the last time I do this, you know. <laughs> All right. This next poem. Uh, this happened one early morning when I couldn't sleep, and I, I had a stream of consciousness going through my head. Uh, words just teeming through. So I thought, I'd better get up. Uh, it was like about five in the morning or something. I thought I'd better get up and just write this down. So it became the next poem. It's about reaching for too much. It's called Chasing the Cherry. Fragile fragments clattering down the lavish marble staircase. Tinkling smithereens smashing, grabbing at China stars. Bursting in clusters. Scattering east-eyed cats. Credit cards dropping from rain clouds. Pour down on the well-polished floor. Tortoiseshell hair combs and black tape cassettes rattle the cages of knife-wielding grand dames, and say, are you chasing the cherry, the merry-go-round of the roses? If so, you must know that the downside is to sink like a ferry. Ascending the slope in herringbone fashion, holding on chromium steel, lifting the barbells with candlestick motion, sidestepping hot wax and wheel, flying with lizards all blown in a gust through staining glass windows and covered with dust blood to keep out the rain, and say, are you chasing the cherry, the merry-go-round of the roses? If so, you must know that the downside is to sink like a ferry. A weapon is not worth a button when anti-world matters explode. And chandeliers drop from the ceiling with sharpshooter skill. Exhausted collapse in a playground, a peak epileptic remains, and froth at the mouth like a river, till teachers in apple pie beds reach out, chalk-filled hands, and lift, lift, and say, are you chasing the cherry, the singular red one on top? It gleams with particular pleasure that may never stop, If so, you must know that the high tide has sunk like a ferry.
2: Right, folks, I hate to sound reductive, but this is the first poem that we have heard today that actually sounds like a quote-unquote actual, classic, proper poem. I was totally spellbound by this one, and it might be my favourite of the ones that he read out loud. Like, I was convinced that only Paul's shorter poems were the quality ones till I heard this one, and I'm glad I was proven wrong, as Paul delivers one of the most expressive and colourful, both literally and figuratively, experiences of his entire career. The language he uses in this one is some of the most surreal and psychedelic that is ever really used, and it strays into some very Lennon-esque territory. When Paul talks about it being a stream-of-consciousness thing after waking up, I totally get what he's on about, as it's in that same kind of bedtime genius that spawns something like Yesterday, and the whole thing works in this strange way where you can't really tell that there isn't a specific goal or outcome for the poem, and yet it's still miraculously cohesive and driven. And in the very best way, the language is so ambiguously beautiful that you really can attribute your own meaning to it. And everyone is guaranteed to take some significant message away from it. Like, how could you not read too much into a phrase like, are you chasing the cherry? That can mean so much to so many different people. Yeah, really enjoyed this one, folks. I think it's absolutely stellar and it feels a real cut above the rest of the the longer form poems that he's done in this series. Following on, we have another example here of how McCartney infuses humour into his poetry, and thank God he does, else it would be just a book about death. (laughs) This is called Trouble Is, it too is from the World
1: Tonight section, and it goes a little like this. Um, As I was telling you about the school magazine and my shameful rejection, I, I, got over that, and I was first published with these poems, some of these, by the man who became the editor of this book, Blackbird Singing. Uh, His name was Adrian Mitchell. He'd been a good friend of mine for a long time. And at the time, he was poetry editor of the New Statesman, and so he wanted me to put some of these poems in, so I, I put this one in. It's called Trouble Is. Rabbit running in circles, chasing his tail because It looks like candy floss. Trouble is, rabbits don't eat candy floss. Black Labrador barking at the antics of his shadow on a wall. Trouble is, shadows don't fight back. A pair of gloves hanging from a back pocket argue about which hand will hold the rake. Trouble is, gloves don't give a shit. (laughs) Oh, this is fun. (laughs) As
2: obviously amusing as this poem is, I can't help but overthink it a little and interpret it as a commentary on the ridiculousness and absurdity of life and existence itself. Like, we all do these silly little rituals and processes in our life and... The trouble is, is that the reasons are ultimately very silly or pointless. The image also of two gloves arguing about which hand will hold the rake wasn't... It was powerful as far as I'm concerned. And whilst I know the feeling that it made me feel, it's very hard to put into words exactly what that was. I can't tell if it's good poetry or bad poetry, but fuck me, did this poem ever make me feel something? And that's really cool. Again... Paul's shortest poems, in their unique brevity, seem to just hit me all the harder and make me want for more. Next up, and rather interestingly, Paul didn't just write about those he loved in this book. No. He actually managed to maintain enough negative energy to write about the person that seemingly he would hate above all others. And the result is this poem. Jerk of all jerks.
1: Okay. Um, this next poem it was uh, something that uh, more serious, which was occasioned by the death of John here in New York. Um, and I know, like everyone in the world, it was such a shock, such a terrible thing to happen. Um, and after all the tears of that day, which I think took all of us probably at least a day to come to terms with it, uh, I found this phrase going around in my head about the guy who'd done it, which was jerk of all jerks. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, this is a poem on that subject called Jerks of All Jerks. I'm a motorist that quite likes a drink when he drives causes the loss of innocent lives. I'm the guy with the pistol who kills your best friend. You can't really blame me, because I'm round the bend. Hello, how are you? I'm jerk of all jerks. I'm here to undo all your charitable works. I do it quite simply by making mistakes. And one little boo-boo is all that it takes. And you're at the mercy of jerk of all jerks. I'm the man that disposes of nuclear waste. There's no need to worry. It's perfectly safe. In fact, there is reason. In fact, there is now every reason to hope that if anything happens, I'll easily cope. Hello, how are you? I'm jerk of all jerks. I'm the leader who says, as he wages his war, that the children are not ones that he's aiming for. Hello, how are you? I'm jerk of all jerks.
2: <clears throat> right, folks, I'm really going to struggle to remain composed and cordial with this poem, because fuck me, is this the most cringeworthy entry in the whole thing? Nay, it's it's the worst thing in the book. I don't like it. I mean, Adrian Mitchell chose to include big boys bickering in the book, for Christ's sakes, and yet the worst thing Paul can say about the man who savagely slaughtered John Lennon was to call him the jerk of all jerks? Is this Paul trying to remain on brand and not be sweary? Because if so, it's the most misplaced use of that notion ever. I know I shouldn't get too hung up on this book, come on, how fucking weak is this writing? There's no balls or bite to it whatsoever, and the whole thing feels like one of the biggest missed opportunities of McCarthy's entire career. But it doesn't just end there with the title. The whole poem is full of awkward concepts that just feel woefully undercooked and half-hearted. I mean, the idea that Paul conflates drink drivers, those who dump nuclear waste, and leaders who wage war with the man who killed John Lennon just feels... Distasteful, not because they're not all bad, but it just feels a little melodramatic, I guess. Like, is the man who killed your one friend as bad as someone who leads millions of people to go to war to die or causes thousands of people to get horrendous diseases? Like, he's definitely playing off the fact that we all hate a certain Mr. Chapman as well because he killed John Lennon, one of our favorite musicians. Um, I feel like if anyone else was writing this, they would do more of an effort to make us hate that specific person and give us details as to why, rather than just be like, oh, well, I don't like this guy because of what he did to me, therefore you all will think he's as bad as these other things too. It's a little overblown. Um, Then you've got the idea of the speaker uh, speaking the poem as introducing themselves as the jerk of all jerks. And that whole conceit, you know, to tie the whole thing together, is just cheesy and amateur to the bone. Honestly, folks, the fact that Adrian Mitchell didn't laugh this thing out of the book is one of the most damning elements of its entire existence. <laughs> Next. Pressing forth, we have the first of the Linda Bay songs. It's called City Park. And being that it was written whilst Linda was still alive, it is not found in the Linda death chapter, and instead, it can be found
1: also in the World Tonight section. It goes like this uh, My favorite New Yorker was, of course, Linda, who was, was born here. She was born here in Doctor's Hospital, and uh, so it became a very special city of, uh, of ours uh, for me through her. Um, When she got ill, uh, she was in hospital one time, and I would stay with her in a camp bed. And in the morning, I made it a habit to go for a run in Regent's Park. And this became a kind of ritual, a sort of prayer. This next poem's called City Park, and it's about that time. 27 Press-Ups at Black Park Bench Altar. Eight warm, even notes from tall church, cool bell. High staccato twittering of small birds against throbbing pigeons. Oh, how do you do? Oh, how do you coo? World's long low surfaced, tickles to life with strangers. Sniffing collie couple, speed-walking high-armed, brisk little sergeant major woman, bouncing peak in tow. Moorhen flutters squawking cross crowded city pond top. All sorts of ducks mill slowly round white swans. Stately black swans, snow-tipped, nipple-red beaks. A crow cackles with thumb on black comb rasp. Winter bare rose bushes line asphalt path. Old yellow scotch, pink posy, portois. Polar star, mood music, and yesterday, where silent gardeners dig. 18 press-ups facing my lover's home, grins to the sky, nine nods this way, nine nods that, and I pray to the spirit of goodness to open page on a fine, fine day, forever and ever, and ever, and ever.
2: This poem is another one where I'm a little on the fence. There are moments and images that I do find memorable and fun. The pigeon saying, how do you do, how do you coo, was adorable. And I love the description of stately black swans with snow-tipped nipple-red beaks, which was very evocative and even a little delightfully naughty from our boy Paul. But these moments are brief and the rest of the poem feels far too disjointed and without direction. Maybe it's indicative of his headspace at the time, you know, running a million miles in every direction, but I would rather have something a little more focused and fall to the brim with this inspiring imagery rather than just brief flashes. And finally, what's with another poem where Paul imbues it with imagery of his exercise regime? Like, I know he's a middle-aged guy in the throes of keeping his body in shape and exercise clears the mind and helps with inspiration, but it's A little lame at this point. (laughs) Like, you know, Paul is so good at inhabiting and creating other characters, and it seems very doldrummy that he's so stuck inside his own head for many of these poems. You know, maybe talk about someone else losing their wife as a way to talk about your own. You don't really get that in this, and I think that's another missed opportunity. Then we come to the first of the poems directly about Linda's death. The chapter surrounding this topic is called Nova a reference to the song we talked about earlier. And fittingly, the poem is called Her Spirit. Here we
1: go. When we lost Linda, uh, obviously for our family, it was a terrible tragedy, to say the least. Um, But I think all of us felt that she was still there and we would hear things and see things that somehow indicated that she was still around. And this next poem... Is about some of those things that happened. The wind chimes would would move and ring, and there wasn't a wind. Uh, So all these strange little eerie things happened. I was was taking a horse ride, which she'd introduced me to. She was a great rider. And uh, I saw, for the second time in my life, I saw a white squirrel. You don't get many of these. And it was just looking at me. It was just staring at me in the eye. And of course I thought it was her. So this is called Her Spirit. Her spirit moves wind chimes when air is still and fills the rooms with fragrance of lily. Her eyes blue-green, still seen, perfectly happy with nothing. Her spirit sets the water pipes a humming, fat electronic force be with your sound. Her spirit talks to me Through animals, beautiful creature lay with me. Bird that calls my name insists that she is here and nothing left to fear. Bright white squirrel, foot of tree, fixes me with innocent gaze. Her spirit talks to me.
2: Whilst this poem does suffer from a little too much from being based directly on real life events rather than the imagination of the writer, it still manages to shine incredibly brightly. Again, thanks to the raw emotive power brought on by the subject matter. Now, Paul does over-explain this one a little in the intro, but he really didn't need to, as it is clear to anyone who has lost someone important in their lives that this is a poem about the comforting self-paradolia of grief. We get examples of Linda in inanimate objects around the house, wind chimes, humming pipes, as well as in nature with birds and a white squirrel. Whilst this whole part of the episode has been about attributing meaning to poetry, this poem in turn is about how we attribute meaning to the poetry of the randomness of life and I thought that that was pretty beautiful in its own artistically ironic way. Next up, we have one of my favourite poems from the whole book, and I'm so glad Paul chose to do it for a live recording. It's called Black Jacket, and it too is from the Nova chapter. Ironically, the page before her spirit. I'm just going to let
1: Paul do his thing now. However, I'm an optimist, and life goes on. So this next short poem is an effort to try and help get on with life. It's called Black Jacket. Sadness isn't sadness. It's happiness in a black jacket. Death isn't death. It's life that's jumped off a tall cliff. Tears are not tears. They're balls of laughter dipped in salt. You. Okay,
2: I really don't need to reiterate this point at all, but yeah, I really dig Paul's briefer poems. And Blackjacket is one of the very best examples. I'm tempted to say that it speaks for itself, because that's how powerful I think it is. But I'll do a bit of explanation, I guess. Uh, Paul mentions being an optimist in the intro, and the three short stanzas of this poem exemplify his unending dedication to optimism effortlessly. You know, he gets the moniker of silly love song Smith thrown at him all the time. And yet this poem is evidence that he can approach these topics seriously and with respect and still somehow infuse a certain sense of hope for the future and an uplifting positivity. That really is palpable. If anything, you can imagine this poem being the things he said to his children after Linda's passing. This poem is about taking a sad song and making it better and that's exactly what he does with grace, with poise and with pinpoint, military-grade, sniper-perfect imagery and efficiency. The line where he describes tears as being balls of laughter dipped in salt is something that I know will stay with me for a long time to come. And finally everyone, we come to the worst kind of poem, one that thinks it's funny but really isn't. This is found in the Friends and Enemies chapter, and it's called Massius Massur. One last time, Paul.
1: This next uh, poem is uh, it's kind of a true story. When when we would go on tour, one of the great perks about going on tour is that you can have a massage every day. You, you wouldn't allow yourself that normally, but you're on tour. You're working hard, and you know you deserve a massage. So. I should probably write a book called Massages of the World. (laughs) Um, Because some funny things have happened, I tell you. (laughs) And I I include some of them in, well, three of them in this poem. Um, I I was in Tokyo, I think it was, and uh, a little lady came to the door. She said, I'm your masseuse. I said, fine. So she asked me to lie down on the floor And uh, she started massaging me and I'm closing my eyes, going into a nice daze, feeling great, getting relaxed. I suddenly realize she started singing, Yesterday, (laughs) all my (laughs) traumas. No, stop it. I'm thinking I hope she doesn't know the middle eight, but she didn't, luckily. I'm trying, oh my God. (laughs) Then we got to, uh, on this world tour, we got to Argentina, we were in Buenos Aires, and um, this lady who showed up, because you never know what you're gonna get, you know? (laughs) She showed up, and what she wanted for me and my son, she did later, so we had some laughs about this later. What she wanted us to do was to lie down in the space between the two twin beds, and we had to make these sort of moaning noises. <laughs> she say, say after me, ah. Oh. So we wanted a massage, we're going, ah. And finally there was a, some big, large, fat guy in New Orleans who, um, <laughs> who got really bizarre. I mean, all I was looking for was a nice, quiet massage, go to sleep and do the muscles, that's all I want. Um, This guy, he he was saying, um, imagine your leg is made of bronze. (laughs) And it's hollow. And take a breath and we'll fill that leg. He said, uh, (laughs) he said, imagine your neck is like a giraffe's neck. So he asked me about halfway through, he said, how do you feel? I said, I feel like a giraffe with a hollow bronze leg. And he finally finished off, sat me up on the table, and he said, look into my eyes and try and burn a hole in my eyes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so this is called Masus Masur. Aso, Japanese masseuse. Lie me on a towel and work me till I'm loose. Hold my hand and sing me yesterday. (laughs) Lie, Argentinian masseuse, beside me on the floor and work me till I'm loose, making moaning noises. We'll play girls and boys. Is anyone at home? (laughs) Oh, you New Orleans masseur, lie me on a table and work me till I'm loose. Imagine my leg as hollow bronze, my neck like a giraffe, and I will burn a hole in your eyes. (laughs) till someone comes to blow the candle out. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, boy. It's true. Now,
2: I know this isn't the fault of the poem, per se, but the real flaw with this one is that the explanation does, rather unsatisfyingly, reveal that there isn't much artistic substance to this at all. Again, this is another memory poem from Paul. But it really does seem that his memory is almost full here. As it's literally just a transposition of what happened. Like, if Paul had let this one be ambiguous and not given the entire backstory to it, then I feel it would have had a little more room to create new meaning in the minds of the listener. And yeah, I know the majority of people who read this one likely not have listened to the audio that I just played But still, the imagery is so specific to Paul and his direct experiences that it kind of saps any ambiguity or imagination from the work. Like, if he had made this up, then it would be a lot more impressive, but he didn't. And it's just him rattling off another memory from his life that works much better as a story than it does as a poem. Also, it goes without saying that the little Japanese accent he did there is going to become less and less acceptable as we move forward. And there we are, folks. That is the last of the poems that we have audio of. And I'm not going to lie, that went a lot better than I thought it was going to. But before the final review, I did just want to give a little shout-out to a couple of other poems from Blackbird Singing that I'd recommend you check out or go back and read when you have the chance. Other poems I liked included... Day with George, a touching tribute to his mentor and collaborator George Martin with some really heartwarming imagery and a sweet reference to his son Giles. There's Velvet Wave, a genuinely intriguing look at McCartney's recording process through the medium of poetry, like it really does sound like something he was writing in the studio at the time, like you do feel like you are there while he's recording something. It also has loads of alliteration which I'm a sucker for. There's was it really 20 years ago? A really interesting musing over what it must be like to have been a flower power child of the 60s. And seeing that whilst some change has happened you know, since that time, it's happened much slower than you would have expected. And it offers a new look on that McCartney optimism, you might say. There's Moon's A Mandarin, the first of the incredibly brief poems in the book. And it's just a really cool image and idea distilled into a single punctuated stanza. There's Full Moon's Eve, again, like a couple of the other poems I've discussed, I don't know exactly why I liked it, but the imagery has definitely stuck with me since. There's No Rhyme, which is just four short lines of absolute bliss. You've got Steel, the second shortest one in the book, at three lines long, and it's easily one of my favourites. It hits harder than a runaway train, and the words are simply sublime. Paul did a really good job with this one. There's Lost, another incredibly powerful Linda Lost poem, and the opening lines are so incredibly blunt and uncompromising, I don't think I'll ever forget them. I lost my wife, she lost her life. That's great, come on, how can you not love that? And finally, you have Dawn Star. Again, another incredibly short and dynamic piece, with a reference to Venus, that a lyric nerd who likes to connect everything together, like me, simply could not ignore. So, overall, folks, what do I think of Blackbird singing? Well, if we're talking about the book as a whole, as a product to be sold, then I do regrettably have to say that I do think it's a little overblown for what it is. As I mentioned earlier, if this was just the poems and not the song lyrics, and it was just a slim collection of poems it would be a far more valuable package for what it is. Like, I really do think the experiment in song lyrics being poems was an absolute failure, and they do come across as a waste of paper. It really is a shame that Paul never stuck to his original idea of a slim volume to talk about at parties. But, then again, it really has started an interesting conversation. So, in the end, it might be worth it, even if it just functions as a warning to future artists not to do something similar. Oh, speaking of paper, I've got to say, the paper quality in the first pressing edition that I have is some of the the best paper I've ever seen in a book. Like, it's a weird thing to bring up in a review, but the quality was just, it was beautiful. It's really thick, and it isn't cut entirely straight on the edges, which gave it a really rustic, vintage feel that I certainly appreciated. However, if we're talking about the poetry on its own, then I would say that this book is a success. Even if it's just a success in the fact that it exists. Paul McCartney releasing a book of poetry, how cool is that? Additionally, though, many of the poems managed to make me feel something. And a large number of the poems were objectively incredible. And even better, it all still felt entirely mccartney Like, yeah, overall, if we're doing a metric, uh, the poetry can be a little hidden in spots. And some of it comes across as a little unedited and amateur. But for a first effort, it's still a very competent and artistic collection of words and rhyme. Okay, if you want to judge Paul by his past successes, then I suppose you could see it as a bit of a letdown. But the fact that everyone was so harsh on the poetry as, you know, being somehow lower of quality than some of his greatest songs of all time, is so unfair. And because of that, he's been spooked into not pursuing it further and honing his craft. Like, what would the second book of Paul McCartney poetry look like? We might never know, thanks to these critics. If it was anyone else's first effort, then it would be lauded. But because it's Paul, and he's held to this lofty standard that can never be met, then... Of course it's not going to meet anyone's expectations. I wonder if his paintings suffered the same kind of criticism. Anyway, I was pretty darn impressed by this collection, folks. And whilst my expectations were certainly lowered by all of the reviews, and whilst I do not have any expertise in the art form outside of a little untrained outsider self-education... I'm still going to give it a good review. You know, fuck it. The book had the power to make me think, to make me feel some emotions, and even got me pondering about the nature of art itself, which isn't bad for only a few quid. But yeah, if I wasn't a podcaster in need of content to talk about and a burgeoning collector who wants everything that his budget will allow to put on his shelf, no, I probably wouldn't picture myself buying this at all. Though, that would have been my loss, as I certainly got a whole lot more than I expected out of this book even if that something was less than half of the content of the book itself, which, again, is a steal when you think about it. At the end of all this, though, I've done some thinking, and I'd be interested in taking some of these poems back to my Birmingham poetry spoken word scene and reading them aloud to a crowd. And I think it'd be a fascinating process to gauge people's opinions on this work and see what they think, and... There are even further options still. Would I tell them that Paul McCartney had written them? Would I distinguish between songs and lyrics? Do I do it now whilst Paul is alive? Do I do it as a tribute once Paul has died? Do I read them quite plainly? Do I read them in a very animated style? There's lots I could do with it. And either way, I'd love to give it a go and see how they would hold up in the world of over the top, overly accentuated, (laughs) melodramatic spoken word. Hell, I might even do my awful McCartney impression, but that waits to be seen. And there we are, folks. We are now done with another episode of Paul or Nothing. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is another episode that went on a lot longer and was a lot more extensive and detailed than I ever thought it was going to be when I started. So I apologise if it is slightly late. But yeah, Here we are. We have reviewed all of Paul McCartney's poetry. Make sure you get the book, folks. Really make sure you do. Um, You might even be able to find it online. I don't know. But it'd be interesting to get a dialogue going about this. I'd love to know what you guys think about Paul McCartney's poetry. I know what one of my patrons thinks. We seem to be pretty much on the same level there. But if any of you have read... Blackbird Singing. if any of you have any memories of its release or the criticisms at the time, drop us an email at paulbaccartlypod at gmail.com. Let's get a chatting about some poetry like some high society toffs. Anyway, I am sure Deddy Lane has already started to play us out, so all I'm gonna say is keep listening to Paul, keep reading poetry, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I've been your host, Sam Wiles. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry Harry Krishna. No more autographs. Take it away, Denny.
1: All right. So I say this is this is the second time in the whole universe that I've ever done this, and um, I thought one of the things you can do uh, at a a reading like this, uh, rather like the uh, Valerie screaming from the gallery before, we we can get a little bit of audience participation. So, are you up for that? We're going to finish with this and uh, before we get on to conversation with Charlie. So what I'd like to do is I'll do the first verse. And then I'd like you to join in quietly with the second verse. And then loudly, like a mad Russian poet, with the third verse. I think you'll get the idea as we go along. One of my more serious works. Why don't we do it in the road? Why don't we do it in the road? No one would. Hold it, hold it. Wait, wait for your moment. Wait. I said I do the first one. No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the road? There you. Why don't we do it in the road? Why don't we do it in the road? No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the road? Why don't we do it in the road? Why don't we do it in the road? No one will be watching us. Why don't we do it?
0: American skeletons, or American ballad of skeletons. Said the presidential skeleton, I won't sign the bill. Said the speaker skeleton, yes, you will. Said the representative skeleton, I object. Said the Supreme Court skeleton, what do you expect? skeleton. Buy star bombs, said the upper class skeleton. Starve unmarried moms, said the Yahoo skeleton. Stop dirty art, said the right wing skeleton. Forget about your heart. Said the Gnostic skeleton. The human forms divine, said the moral majority skeleton. No, it's not, it's mine, said the Buddha skeleton. Compassion is wealth, said the corporate skeleton. It's bad for your health, said the old Christ skeleton. Care for the poor, said the son of God skeleton. AIDS needs cure, said the homophobe skeleton. Gay folks suck, said the heritage policy skeleton. Blacks are out of luck. skeleton women in their place said the fundamentalist skeleton increased the human race said the right to life skeleton fetus has a soul said the pro-choice skeleton Shut up your hall job said the tough on crime skeleton tear gas the mob said the governor's skeleton cut school lunch said the mayor's skeleton eat the budget crunch said the neocon skeleton free markets the way said the savings alone skeleton make the state pay to the Chrysler skeleton pay for you and me to the new power skeleton and me and me and me The national skeleton. What's it worth to you? macchiadora skeleton sweatshops low pain. rich cat skeleton said one world high tech said the underclass skeleton get it in the neck said the world bank skeleton cut down your trees said the imf skeleton buy american cheese sell us rice, send it, develop nation skeleton said, send your bones for dice, said the ayatollah skeleton, die right or die, said Joseph. skeleton roar bombers roar said the psychedelic skeleton smoke a dinosaur said nancy's skeleton just say no said the rasta skeleton blow nancy blow Said the alcoholic skeleton, Let your liver rot. Said the junkie skeleton, Can we get a fix? Said the big brother skeleton, Jail the dirty pricks. Said the mirror skeleton, Hey, good looking. Said the electric chair skeleton, Hey, what's cooking? show skeleton, fuck you in the face, said the family value skeleton, my family value's base, said the New York Times skeleton, that's not fit to print, said the CIA skeleton, can't you take a hint?
1: Down,
0: down, down, down. Said the network skeleton. Believe my lies, said the advertising skeleton. Don't get wise, said the media skeleton. Believe you, me, said the couch potato skeleton. What, me worry? (laughs) Light, said the newscast skeleton. That's all. Good night.